The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The text for the sermon this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 14. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the one in the pew back in front of you. 2 Samuel 14 is on page 265. 2 Samuel 14. Now Joab the son of Zeruiah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth." Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. 
It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king, to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We have your word before us, and we want to understand it and apply it. So we pray that you would give us help in being able to parse the terms, the words, the story itself, be able to understand what is written on the pages of your Holy Scripture. But then we want to understand what it actually means for us, so we ask that you give us help in doing just that. Open our hearts and our minds today to your word. Teach us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a phrase that you have no doubt heard. Maybe you have been tempted to use a time or two. It is, the end justifies the means. Now, you might think to yourself, I would never use that phrase. I don't think that that's always true. But then you find yourself as a young parent with a toddler in a grocery store, and in the middle of the aisle, your cart full of groceries, the toddler pitches a fit. You have an option that's sitting in front of you. You can either go out to the parking lot and leave your grocery cart there in the middle of the aisle and give your toddler the uh, 
reward for their tantrum, or you can turn to them and say, if you stop crying now, I'll get you a Snickers bar. Look, I'm not going to advocate for that position. I'm just saying it's been used a time or two, all right, in the store. Now, you wouldn't ordinarily advocate for bribery, for good behavior, right? We would, we would say no, and in fact, that won't make it into the parenting conference, by the way, just so you know. We won't be advocating for that or teaching that. But you wouldn't normally advocate for that. But you know what? It's Thanksgiving weekend. You've got a lot of groceries to buy because you've got a lot of people coming. And if you put all these groceries back or you don't buy them now, they might be out of the sage. They always run out of sage. Why? Order more, you know? But anyway, so you think to yourself, I've got to do this. And you think, well, maybe in this case, Maybe this case alone, the end justifies the means. But then, the next grocery trip you take with that little cunning sinner, he has figured out what it takes to secure a Snickers bar on this trip to the grocery store is to pitch a wall-eyed fit right in the middle of the aisle so that you will get him that candy bar. But now you've got a twofold problem on this second trip because now not only have you taught him how to get what he wants, throwing a wall eyed fit, you have also taught him that the means are fine so long as they produce the desired ends because that's what you've just done. Now, the question that we're asking that I'm asking in this sermon, and I think this text is calling us to ask, is what about you? Have you ever been tempted, maybe not in the grocery store, but maybe somewhere else, have you ever been tempted to compromise the means to get to or produce the desired ends? Have you ever thought to yourself, "Ah, maybe this one time, It doesn't matter. Maybe just a hair of unrighteousness. So long as no one is looking is okay. So long as in the end it works to a good solution. Believe it or not, we are rapidly coming to the end of the Samuel saga or the David saga or the David Chronicles, however you want to categorize 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've been studying them for the last year, since last August. And as we begin our descent, and the pilot turns on the fasten seatbelt signs, the author is going to bring many of the themes that we've seen from the very beginning of the book to bear here at the end. Remember that 1 Samuel opens, and the first sermon I preached, opens with Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. Do you remember that? 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah prays, and she says this in verses 8 to 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. She's praying about God, and she says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. 
For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. You can sense a theme running through Hannah's prayer there, I think, if you pay close attention to it. And I've got some of the words underlined there to kind of emphasize that. You can see that she's emphasizing that God is the one that anoints the king. God is the one that is in control of this situation. He exalts. He brings low. He's the one that is doing all of this. And He's the one that gives strength to His king. And He exalts the horn of His anointed one. Those are saying essentially the same thing. The horn would be like the king. He exalts the king. He's the one that makes the king. Not anyone else. He's the one that picks who is the king, essentially. And that's what we see play out in First and Second Samuel, isn't it? God is the one that chooses. He guards the feet of His faithful ones. In other words, ones who seek His wisdom and don't live by wickedness. He guards the feet of His faithful ones. And more than that, the ones that try to save themselves by their own might which is the way David describes it later on in 1 Samuel, the ones that try to save themselves by their own might, who try to produce their desired ends by their own means, instead of relying on Him, He considers them to be adversaries, and He cuts them off. Do you see that? That's in Hannah's prayer. And we're going to see that working its way out. We have seen that so far work its way out in this book. In other words, the Lord prioritizes. The Lord guards, the Lord protects, the Lord keeps. His dependent children, the ones who depend on Him, those are the ones He considers to be His children. Well, this passage that's sitting in front of us is really strange. And it's not strange because it's hard to understand. And when you read it, you can see the story. It makes enough sense, at least. Maybe you don't understand every phrase that's used, but it, it makes enough sense. It's strange, not because it's hard to understand, but because after you read it, you go, what does that have to do with anything? Right? Here we are reading about David. He did this. He did that. Then his sons did this and did that. And then here comes this wise lady, and here's Joab doing this thing and wanting to bring... What's with the lady? And, and why does Joab want to bring Absalom back after he did what he did. And then, why does Absalom burn Joab's field down? Which is still a part of the passage I cannot read without laughing every time. This passage is difficult because I think when you read it, you feel like, deep down, there is something going on here that I don't understand. There is a reason why the author has included this story here that is not readily apparent to me. What you're going to see in this passage is that right in line with Hannah's prayer, Joab and Absalom are seeking to gain a righteous outcome by unrighteous means. Both of them are. Now, they reason that perhaps the end 
justifies the means. As long as we get there in the end, however I have to get there to produce that end is fine. And both of them attempt to accomplish some kind of salvation by their own hand. Now, in our story today, Joab is going to take center stage. But in subsequent weeks, we're going to see Absalom come to center stage. But both of them are going to attempt to produce what they think is a righteous outcome, even if it is by unrighteous means that they have to get there. So the first thing that we're going to see in this passage is Joab's deception. We're going to see the deception that Joab tries to bring to David. Now, it is obvious, or it should be obvious, that David is not keen on Absalom coming back to the land. Now, I want you to remember what happened last week. I'm not going to rehash everything. I realize it was Labor Day. We're not going to go back through all of those things. Quite a bit of people were absent, and that's fine. But I, I just want to kind of help us to remember what happened is that Absalom, uh, who is a son of David, killed his older half-brother. And his older half-brother Amnon was actually, really should have been the heir to the throne. So he's the oldest, he's next in line, so to speak. Amnon had committed an egregious sin against Absalom's full-blood sister. So Absalom sought vengeance. He sat on that vengeance for two years before he finally found his opportunity and he killed his older brother Absalom, and then he headed for the hills. He went off into exile. And he hasn't been seen for three years. But if you look at verse 1, we have this phrase in our English version that says, David's heart went out to Absalom. And sometimes that is uh, translated like he yearned for or he longed for. Like you might say that today. You might say, oh, my heart goes out to him. Right? You, you, so, similar kind of phrasing. And when you read it that way, you leave with the impression that David was really sympathetic toward Absalom's plight. And he really felt sorry for him. And he understands why he had to do what he did. And he really wishes it weren't the case. That is not the right way to read this. In fact, what it sa actually says in verse 1 in the literal translation is, David's heart to Absalom. It, it leaves out the, the word went out completely. And you get that term from the previous verse in verse 39 of chapter 13. And it's where it says the same thing there. And the, the meaning, I think, should be something more like David's heart longed to march out to Absalom. All right. He's not wanting to go out there and give him a hug. He's wanting to go out there and wrap his arms around him to choke the life out of him. All right? He's wanting to put an end to Absalom, but he is also his son, and so he knows that he can't do that or doesn't want to do that, or whatever the case may be, he's not going to do that. But it's that he, his heart wanted to go after Absalom, but he didn't. So verse 1 likely means that Joab knew that David's heart desired still, even after all these years, to go out there and put an end to Absalom. He was not at all fond of what Absalom had done, and he remained hostile to him. Now, if you think about it that way, that makes much more sense of verse 24, if you go down and read it, where, it said, where David says, when he acknowledges Absalom can come back in, but he says, let him dwell apart in his own house, 
he is not to come into my presence, right? If he longed to go out, or I was sympathetic toward Absalom, or I really wish I could go out there too, then it wouldn't say that, right? David would have welcomed him into his presence, but that's not what he's doing. So David is still, it seems, very mad at Absalom, but Joab clearly wants Absalom to return, all right? So Absalom's been in Gesher for three years where his maternal grandfather lives, and he's been out there living with him. And so Joab, to get Absalom back in the land, enlists the help of this wise woman of Tekoa. That's how she's introduced to her, was this wise woman, a prophetess, maybe something like that. We have no idea. We just know she's from Tekoa, which is the same place the prophet Amos is from, incidentally. She comes to David and she presents this issue in verse 4. We're going to read it. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So the woman was hired by Joab to play the role of a bereaved widow. Was she really a, a bereaved widow? Was she, did this really happen to her? And she's using it as a root? We don't know. But it seems to be just a clever uh, uh, claim that she's making to present to David this story like a parable, where she's claiming that her two sons went out to the field, they got into a fight with one another, one thing led to another, and as brothers are wont to do, one hit the other, and the one that got hit died. Now, according to the law, the tribe has the right to be the avenger of blood. They have the right to go out and purge the evil person from among them. That's all throughout Deuteronomy. They have the right to go out and do this and kill the one who is the murderer and put him to death. So, but even though this was legal, if they put her second son to death, then this would deprive the widow of her last male heir. So it would basically bring an end to her husband's name and all of her husband's wealth would then go to the community or elsewhere. So David responds in verse 8 and he makes a promise that he will not allow her son to die. But once David has given her the decision, she then pulls back the curtain of this allegory. I think you'll remember that a couple of chapters ago, something similar to this happened, didn't it? Once David fell for the story and made his decision, then it was pulled back by the prophet Nathan. Thou art the man, right? Well, it's a little bit anticlimactic here, but she does it anyway, and she says that this story is actually an allegory for Absalom's history. Look at verse 12. The woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. 
inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home, bring Absalom home. We must all die. We are like spilled uh, water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away the life, and He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. So she's buttering him up. So her story is essentially an allegory for David's family drama that she is very concerned about. And in her allegory, Israel plays the widow in the story, and she makes that apparent to David. And her two sons are essentially playing the roles of Amnon and Absalom in the situation that transpired with David's son. Amnon was dead, and if Absalom was killed or permanently banished, then Israel would be left with no one to carry on the family heritage. So without Absalom... Israel, she says, will be poured out like water that cannot be regathered. So, needless to say, she is very worried about Israel's future because of the decision that David has made to leave Absalom out in exile, banished. So, essentially, this is Joab's connived dollar store version of Nathan's reveal a couple of chapters ago. It doesn't have nearly the same punch because, one, it's not true. So let's just say that, first of all. It's not. And it is Joab working behind the scenes to try to bring this thing about to get Absalom back into town. Similar to Nathan, David is convinced He's convicted by the parable, or maybe he just doesn't want to put up with it all, and he just decides to give in, but he figures out Joab is behind it all. He says, tell me, just tell me the truth. Will you promise to tell me the truth? He says, I'll tell you the truth. He says, this has got Joab written all over it. Sniffs it out from the beginning. She goes, you got me. This is all Joab. That has, he's put these words in my mouth. But Joab want, wants to tell David to bring Absalom back home. And, he, uh, and, as, and David agrees to it as long as Absalom stays in his house. Now, here's the weird part about this. Joab is not loyal to Absalom at all. In fact, in the coming chapters, Absalom is going to attempt to take the throne from David, and he's going to run David out of town. Now, maybe it's because Absalom is about to burn down Joab's field. That might have made him mad. I don't know. I think it would have. But for one reason or another, Joab does not join in Absalom's little charade of taking the throne back from David or from David. So Joab is not loyal to Absalom, even when he tried to take the throne. Joab's motivation for bringing Absalom back 
We don't see exactly stated explicitly in the passage, but I think the parable of the woman tells us everything we need to know about why Joab wants to get Absalom back into town. And it starts uh, to get to the real point I think the author is getting at in this passage. First, we have to remember that the word of the woman is Joab's word. All right? She says that in verse 19. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. So she's making it very clear to David, these are Joab's words. I am repeating, I'm telling you the story he told me to tell you, I'm doing everything that he told me to tell you. So the word of the woman is the word of Joab. That's the first thing to remember. Second, the banishing of Absalom is seen in the parable that the woman gives as detrimental to the people of God. All right? The banishing of Absalom is seen as detrimental to the people of God. Verse 13. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Verse 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. So why is Absalom's banishment seen as detrimental to Israel in the eyes of Joab? Why does Joab see Absalom's banishment as detrimental to Israel? We'll look at three. In the woman's parable, the death of her only remaining son would destroy her husband's heir from the earth. Look at verse 7. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So what she's making clear in the parable, which is somewhat hard to discern as you move through it, is that Joab's interest in bringing Absalom back is to save Israel from destruction because he sees David's heir as Absalom. And that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Well, this is also, by the way, in line with what Joab will do later on in the, in, in the book of 1 Kings. When Solomon comes to the throne, Adonijah, another one of David's sons, will rise up and try to take the throne from Solomon. And Joab will not join Solomon, but will join Adonijah. He sees Adonijah now as, having, as being the rightful heir to the throne. So it seems that Joab is rejecting something that God has already decided. If you go back into chapter 12, verse 24, just turn back there and look with me. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This couple of verses right here is God deciding who the next king will be. Remember Hannah's prayer? He's the one that exalts the horn of his anointed. 
He's the one that chooses the kings. He's the one that sets them on the throne. He's the one that secures them in place. He has chosen Solomon as the heir. But now what is Joab deciding to do? What is the woman telling David when she comes to present this parable? Oh no, your heir, Absalom, who's next in line to the throne, is off in exile. And if he is banished, you're getting old, by the way, David. If you die and Absalom is out there in exile, what's going to happen to Israel? Well, we're just going to wither on the vine. We're just going to die. So now Joab, through this store-brand version of Nathan the prophet, tells David, if you don't bring the heir back, Israel is going to die, and we're going to be left without a king, and the Lord is going to kill us, and woe is me. What's going to happen to us? See, Joab knows David is not wanting to bring Absalom back. We saw that in verse 24. And he likely even knows by this point that Solomon is the heir apparent. That he's the one next in line for the throne. So Joab's wise woman is not like the prophet Nathan coming with a word from the Lord, but it's like the deceptive serpent coming into the garden to question the man and the woman. Did God really say Solomon will be king? No. We will not surely live if Solomon's the king and Absalom is banished. God knows, you see, that if Solomon is to become your king and Absalom is to be banished, you will surely die. And so what is Joab doing here? But reaching out to take wisdom by his own hands and attempting by deceptive means to accomplish the so-called righteous ends of saving Israel. I know, says Joab, I'll be Israel's savior. And I'll bring Absalom back, even if this old fogey sitting on the throne can't put two and two together. He's lost a step, and I'm going to help him out by saving Israel myself. That flies right in the face of Hannah's prayer at the very beginning of 1 Samuel. It is God who saves Israel, not the king. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God raises the poor from the ashes. The next king is not Joab's to anoint. Israel is not Joab's to save. God is. But worst of all, perhaps the most tragic part of the story that's not even really mentioned, is that instead of David crushing the head of the serpent right there and sending the wise woman back to Tekoa, he accepts the deal. And he lets Absalom come back. So now we see Absalom's destruction. Look at verse 25. Now, in all Israel... There was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his, the hair of his head, for at the end of the, every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, obviously named after his sister. 
she was a beautiful woman. Now, so the most famous thing about Absalom that can be said was his hair, which, can we just admit, seems like a really strange detail. Like he looks like, just like we saw the dime store presentation of the prophet come in to David. Now we see the dime store presentation of the man on the cover of the novel, right? The long hair, you know, gallantly fighting. He's a, it's sort of a caricature of who this guy is. The most famous thing about him is this hair given right in the middle of this narrative. Why? Why would he tell us this? Stop the story and tell us this. Well, the reason probably has to do with all the parallels between Absalom and the two kings that have already been presented to us in 1st and 2nd Samuel. You remember how Saul is introduced to us? Saul is introduced to us, introduced to us as choice and handsome back in 1st Samuel chapter 9 verse 2. And he's on his way to be anointed by Samuel. David is described to us in similar fashion as being the most handsome in the land in 1 Samuel 16, 12 and th to 13, and that's on his way to being anointed as king. So here, Absalom is touted for his handsome appearance as he also is on his way in a dime store kind of way, a store brand, value brand sort of way of taking the throne from David. Verse 27 continues the comparison. Absalom's house, just like David's, was being built up. So there's parallels that the author is, is bringing up here between the previous two kings that have come before him. Both Absalom and Saul are described as the most handsome Israelites of the time, and both are distinguished by their heads. But Saul was because his head towered above the rest. Absalom because his head had all this hair on it, and it was better than everybody else's. It's, it's comedy to some extent. You must understand that these comparisons, though, are on purpose. They're highlighting a flaw in human government. And the flaw is that we are always impressed by slick-looking people. It is not a new phenomenon. Glamour magazine did not invent it. We are always impressed by slick-looking people, and for some reason, we think they really know something. And they prove when they open their mouth that they do not. All right? And again, here, they're impressed by the, the physique, the picturesque person of Absalom. He has it all figured out. He is the biggest, the tallest, the most handsome, the most the brave fighter. It gives him tons of political power with people as they watch him move into Jerusalem. But in the books of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, it shows you, it highlights to you the incessant need we have to look on the outward appearance of everything and determine its value only by the outward appearance and not see what's underneath. Indeed, we cannot. God makes it clear to us, you look on the outward appearance and you judge everything by its outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It goes back to what Hannah said in her prayer, for not by might, you might as well say, not by hair shall man prevail. 
Not by anything on the outside will man prevail, but by what God does. Well, two years after his return, Absalom is frustrated that he had not yet been reintroduced to the court. He initially agreed to the deal, but he later rethought it because he's been sitting out there in his house under house arrest, and he doesn't like it. And so he takes matters into his own hands. Look at verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. (laughs) Sorry. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent you word. I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, I pose this question to you quite frequently, is what do you do when you're sitting there on your couch and you've got this passage in front of you in your daily reading program? You've got 2 Samuel chapter 14, and you get to this and you say, Joab got his field set on fire by Absalom. And and you're supposed to not just read it and close your Bible and say, well, that happened one time, I guess. I guess that's the meaning. But walk away with some sort of spiritual edification for this story. What is it that you walk away with? Is it, be careful whose calls you send to voicemail. I don't know, right? Maybe, I don't know what you get up with. But essentially, he's there as, as this wild bobcat of a man that Joab has brought back into the land, and he just lets loose, and he sets his field on fire like a crazy person. Burned his field to the ground. But his purpose is what? His purpose is to get back in the king's good graces. That's what he wants. He knows David is not going to put him to death. David has had five years to put him to death, and he hasn't done it yet. Now he's in the land he's had two, and he still hasn't done it yet. So what is Absalom afraid of? The answer is absolutely nothing. He knows David is not going to put him to death. He wants to be brought back into the king's court to be publicly acknowledged by the king. See, if he comes into David's court and David kisses his head or accepts his offer, then all things in the public eye are forgiven. And Absalom is exalted back from pariah to prince. You understand? So in the eyes of the people, Absalom has now curried tons of favor with David. And David is too weak to do anything about it. Morally or otherwise, he's too weak to do anything about it. And for his part, Absalom is conniving. He wants to work this thing in his favor, I think because he knows what he's about to do in trying to take the throne from David. But Joab is now beginning to see that the end didn't really accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in bringing Absalom back, did it? No. All that ended up happening was he lost his barley harvest at the end of it. You see... The wisdom of man, it turns out, never in the end produces the righteousness of God. 
That is the theme that's being produced here. When you see Joab getting his field burned to the ground, it's not walking away going, well, I guess I have to be careful about who I ignore or whose calls I send to voicemail or whatever. It's really about saying the wisdom of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, your man-centered ends does not justify unrighteous means. In fact, God's people should always live righteously. Why? Because our wisdom is not capable of producing righteousness on its own. In fact, our wisdom makes godly wisdom, true godly wisdom, seem strange. When you talk to your friends and you explain why you as a Christian don't do this or that, it does not sound normal to them. And if it does sound normal to them, there's probably a problem with the thing that you're doing. In fact, Paul lays this out as the center of the gospel. That when Jesus comes to earth as Lord and Savior and then dies on the cross and rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, that is seen as weird in the eyes of the world. That is not at all a normal thing. In fact, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 18, verse 24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But what Paul is making clear is that the wisdom of God, often to the worldly mind, seems like a strange way to accomplish the goal. It doesn't seem like that should produce the end result. Wait, sending your son to the world to die on a cross? How, in the end, is that going to produce my forgiveness? Because it turns out you, sinner, actually owed God a debt your life because you took it in your sin and ran with it. That was His life that He gave to you. And now you owe it to Him. But Christ came to the world to live perfectly and take on the cross all the wrath that you and I deserve. He took it on His own shoulders. That's how. But it doesn't seem like on the surface that the death of Christ should produce the ends of righteousness for me. And yet, God's wisdom undermines man's wisdom. And it says this exactly 
what it accomplishes. Well, as we saw last week, even in the midst of such unbelievable tragedy, God has this plan that remains unflappable. He has chosen Solomon as David's heir, not Amnon, not Absalom, not even Adonijah. All three of them are going to die in, and by, the, by the time we get to 1 Kings. But Solomon is going to be king because God's plan remains unflappable. But Solomon, even by his own admission, is super young. He prays to God when he asks for wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 3, he tells him, I'm a kid. I don't know any of this stuff. I need wisdom. Best guess is he's somewhere around the age of 20, but certainly not much older than that. He's very immature, very young. And here this much more handsome, self-appointed avenger of his sister's honor, Absalom, is, seems more suited to the throne. And he's next in line. God, why wouldn't you make him king? Look at what he's got. He's got hair that goes on for days. The picturesque person. It's because the king is not established by man's wisdom. The king isn't established by his hair, by his good looks, by his ability in war. The king isn't actually even, his role isn't even establishing God's kingdom. God establishes God's kingdom. He's the one that sets the king on the throne. And in Christ, not only do we have a king establishing God's kingdom, we have God in the flesh establishing God's kingdom. Again, as Hannah prays, He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. Frequently, God's ways do not make sense to us. Even as we do a survey of our life, there may be plenty of things that we come across that we look at and we go, this does not make sense. I don't understand why God brought this thing into my life. Even if it's tragedy, even if it's tragedy brought about by your sin, we cannot imagine how God could possibly do anything with this. Why, God, have you brought this kind of a thing to me? Your boss tells you to do it one way, but look, I've been doing it this way for years, and my way is way faster and way more efficient. But guess what? God hasn't actually commanded you to be speedy and efficient. He's commanded you to submit to authority. That's a problem. Because I don't want to submit to authority. But He's commanded you to submit to those who are in authority over you. Does the means of compromising the authority that's over you justify the ends of speed and efficiency? God says, no. The government's Excessive taxes are unfair. But they don't know about my side hustle yet. So, maybe what they don't know won't hurt them. I don't actually make that much anyway on this side hustle. And if I keep more money for myself, then my church will be blessed because I'll give to my church. And it goes for God's kingdom, doesn't But you don't understand... God's kingdom ain't dependent on your cash. Our light bill does, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's a joke. 
It's not depending on your cash. He's told you to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's. Righteous, unrighteous, uh, righteous ends will not be produced by unrighteous means. You have a vendetta against someone and you have the opportunity to tear them down in front of people. See, this person would be better off if they knew who that guy really was. And let me just tell them. Let me inform them. But then you're confronted by God's revealed word. If you don't forgive, neither will your Father forgive you. And vengeance is mine. I will repay. Righteous ends will not be produced from unrighteous means. God's revealed will is in the pages of Scripture. They are ours to keep. This is the way righteous ends are produced. God calls His people to a way or His way of righteousness in spite of the fact that it frequently leads followers of Christ to death. You realize that? God, these means that you've called me to of righteousness frequently in the past have led Christians into the lion's den, into the Colosseum to be fed to the lions. It's caused them to be burned at the stake, these righteous means that you've caused me to live to, often leads to death and imprisonment. This doesn't make sense to us when we look at the outward appearance of the matter. Wouldn't God's kingdom be better blessed with me alive than dead? And God's answer is, in some cases, no. But God is not in heaven, you understand. Pacing back and forth, trying to figure out a way to keep you alive. That's not what He's doing. He's not thinking to himself, man, I, I know he's going to die, but maybe I can get around it some way. You understand what the Bible tells us? It is appointed for man once to die. Not it happens and God has to figure out something to do with it. It is appointed by him for man once to die. God is actively working in the meantime to produce righteousness in His people and bring about resurrection to perfect righteousness. That's what He's accomplishing in and through you. So then the question, what are the things you're struggling with today? What are the situations at work or at home or otherwise that have you perplexed and frustrated that you don't know what to do. The end of these problems might not be apparent to you at the moment. In fact, frequently they are not apparent to you. Frequently you don't know what to do. And you don't know how to get there. But what are God's revealed means to get there? And the answer is, walk in righteousness. You don't have to know how it ends. You don't have to know how God is going to work it all out. You are not anyone else's Savior, and you're not your own Savior either. You don't have to know how this situation is going to be resolved. What God has called you to is righteous living in the here and now. What God has called you to is put your nose in His Word and understand what He demands of you. 
That's what he's required of you. How's he going to work all this out? I don't know. And frequently, he doesn't tell you. Sometimes he works it out, and you still don't know how it all resolved itself. And maybe you'll never find out until eternity. And maybe not even then will you find out. Because some things exist in the mind of God alone. And you, as his creature, have to be okay with that. We, as beneficiaries of his grace, have to be okay with his sovereignty. Because even if we're not, it doesn't matter. He's sovereign anyway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are God and we are not. Because before long we would make a complete and total mess of our lives if we were. We trust you. We acknowledge sin in our life leads us to doubt. So help our unbelief. And we realize that there are things in our lives that are chaotic, that we don't understand, that we don't know the resolution to. And we can only trust. And we're tempted to try to work salvation by our own hands, establish our own feet, keep ourselves from falling in one way or another. And yet we come to the end of ourselves and realize I can't provide my own salvation. So, Father, whatever those situations are in our lives, be they going on right now or in the future, we pray that you would give us help to look with the eyes of faith at the situation and say, I don't save. God saves. To trust your word and to live by righteousness, even when it seems like it won't produce righteous ends. We pray for the Spirit's help to trust that it will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.